Hi, and welcome back to the European VC, your podcast for insights into the European VC industry. If you love our show, do drop us a review, share it with your friends, and join our Slack community at theeuropeanvc.com forward slash community. And don't forget, if you are about to raise a fund or an international round, do let us know, and we'll be happy to introduce you to relevant investors. Today, we're happy to introduce you to Mike Reed, founder and senior partner at Frog Capital a growth stage fund focusing on the opportunity emerging between venture capital and private equity. Mike brings perspectives on a part of VC that we rarely speak about, but that many founders need. So we hope you'll enjoy this conversation as much as we did. Before starting today's episode, we'd like to introduce you to Four Degrees. Four Degrees is the VC Relationship Intelligence CRM that helps you source and close deals in less time. Built by VCs who recognize the power of relationship networks, Four Degrees will transform your network into a living, breathing engine of opportunity by automating the deal-making process. To learn more about how Four Degrees can help you leverage your firm's relationships to move deals forward faster, visit fourdegrees.ai forward slash EUVC. Mike, hello. Welcome to the European VC. It's super nice to have you. How are you today? I'm very well, guys. Looking forward to this. Uh, so are we, so are we. I always love to start these episodes with asking our guests, you know, there's so many different routes to the investment world. I have the feeling that as time goes by, there's more. Yeah. <laughs> Share with us your story. How did you get into this world? Um, well, I think two things are relevant. One is really logical, which is um, I was in an operational, various operational roles before, more by luck than anything, got into private equity and so saw that whole kind of private equity, growth capital, venture capital, which we'll come on to in, into the podcast. And then the second thing is kind of a, a natural affinity to change. I was, I was born in Kenya. I lived in Nigeria, Thailand, Australia, Sweden. It took me a while, I think, when I was younger to realize, actually, I was more attuned and more comfortable to change. And that's clearly led me to a place where I really enjoyed. Today, we are here to also talk about Frog Capital. Yes, indeed. So share with our audience, what is Frog Capital? Give us a quick overview. So Frog is focused on scale-up software companies in the European landscape, particular focus on net positive companies, which again, we'll come on to. Why is that? Because the DNA and the passion of the partners is all about supporting genuinely supporting, which I'll come on to as well, because there's a lot of marketing around, the incredibly tough journey of taking a company from 50 people to 500 people. That is our DNA. Everything we do is around thinking about how to improve the support for our companies. And that's, that's working fantastically. Clearly, these aren't small tickets. <laughs> so let us know what investment size, what investment stage. Yeah, this is a really um, strong, subtle point. You've got your kind of venture capital and growth capital. Our stage and focus is at the lower end of growth capital. You, know, you guys will have spoken to some larger players. So we very deliberately work below radar, I would say. So ticket size, typically, the total round size is typically five to 20 million pounds, euros. And the check size from Frog is typically, at, at the beginning, five to 10 million euros. Under the radar, or well, I can't remember the exact expression you said, but purposely kind of operating a bit, a bit like that. Why? The challenge with growth capital or late stage venture over the last 20, 25 years has typically been 
overpaying. So you get um, a lot of sensible people chasing unicorns, chasing whatever the prior generation would be, getting into some really good logos in a bid to focus on their next fundraise. But the entry price, when you enter a price, particularly of a European company, at sort of three, four, five, six hundred million euros to make a three x plus net of fees and carry off that is incredibly tough. We don't play that game, which fits with the DNA and culture that I talked about of the support for scale up businesses. To say most of the companies that we initially back, you won't have heard of. These are companies that people don't really know. But within two or three, four years, a lot of people, particularly in the sector, will know those companies, partly because of our involvement in terms of helping reposition, brand, etc. But it's a really interesting arbitrage phase we see. So companies below 10 million ARR, kind of in and around sort of three, four, five million ARR, they are not on the radar really of your kind of TA associates, your private equity, or even your larger M&A guys. But once you get up to $10 million ARR plus, plus with decent messaging, you are absolutely on the radar. Your valuation takes an uptick, and, and clearly that's a smart financial strategy if you can make it work. Last time we spoke, you used a very funny analogy, and I, I'm not sure if you remember it, but you compared portfolio construction to a garage. I did. I did. <laughs> are you reminded the Ferraris, the Land Rovers, and the BMWs? That's awesome. <laughs> Please, you remember. We took notes. <laughs> I'd love to hear a bit about how you think about portfolio construction, actually, generally speaking. So I think that the first place to start is, okay, who's your customer? You know, ultimately, we've got two customers. One is the management teams, and the second is obviously our LPs. And oddly, I'll start with the most important, which is the scale-up management teams. And, and I deliberately use the word scale-up management team rather than founder or CEO, because for us, it's about that team. It may include founders, of course, but um, in this day and age. So that group, if you are genuinely one of those people, we think you're really interested in a highly engaged, positive, constructive relationship with your new investor. And so when it comes to portfolio construction, the unspoken thing is you don't really want to be one of 50 companies that if you miss your second and third quarter numbers, you start to become a bit of a has-been in the portfolio. So for us as a specialist growth equity fund, you know, every company we invest in is important. We are very deliberate about the deals we make. And then the customer, the, the broad set of the management team, will get to know and have interaction with a broad set of the frog team, our sales specialist, our technology specialist, our finance specialist, etc. So the proposition and engagement from a frog perspective is deliverable because of portfolio construction. We're doing 12 to 14 deals a fund. We're not doing 30 deals a fund. When you're doing 30 deals a fund, operationally, it's impossible to execute such an engaged strategy. So, of course, then you are going to fall into the trap of, well, you just get the senior principal on your board. If you underperform, your senior partner's probably going to move on to the unicorn and spend more time on that. That's the kind of dynamics on, the, on that customer side. And then on the LP side of things, I think it's really fascinating because you've kind of got two worlds VC and then growth equity and buyouts. The VC world clearly is, as you guys are focused on with a lot of your other discussions, is a fascinating world, but the breadth of volatility is enormous. 
you need that unicorn to pay back the fund. You need to justify a kind of certainly a 3x net plus fund, ideally more than that. And given the failure rate, one in a thousand startups actually gets to scale up phase and one in a thousand scale ups gets to full on success. It's an incredibly difficult phase. But you know, that is a model to invest in growth equity and fraud capital back to portfolios construction, I think is fascinating, because our goal and what we're currently delivering with our current funds is to have a lower loss ratio in the fund than a buyout fund. Never mind a VC fund. The loss ratio in a VC fund is terrifying because if you don't get that unicorn, there's no way you can go. You are dead. Whereas actually mentally, we're thinking, okay, with growth equity, which is low leverage, you don't have no leverage in your companies, unlike a buyout fund. If you get your operational and engagement strategy right, that you select the right companies and have a really strong relationship with them, you can drive a strategy where you have incredibly low loss ratio together with the potential for significant upside. That's the package that I think is so compelling with early growth equity. The garage analogy that David talked about before was, of course, Ferraris. That's the Series A-like. That's the 10 Nexus, the Land Rovers. That's above 2.5x. And then you've got the BMWs that are a bit below. It's clear from what you're saying here, you guys aren't investing in Ferraris. That's not what you're buying. But then looking at the Land Rover landscape, the Land Rovers, they can outlast many owners. And I'm curious to hear if secondaries, is that something that's a part of your portfolio? Because you have so many VC funds that are saying, okay, this isn't the Ferrari that we thought it might be. Now we're kind of just getting out of it. Is this a strategy of yours to be picking up the ones that the VCs are forsaking? I'd probably look at it in a slightly different way because I think having been through a few crashes now, examples that you're highlighting there are typically more challenging and not our arena. You know, typically you have multiple layers of liquidation preference with a lot of money that's gone in. And I really empathize with some of the founders of those businesses, but it's a very difficult game to kind of buy into a secondary because it takes a lot of time to cram down a liquidation preference stack, et cetera, et cetera. There are a whole set of entrepreneurs and opportunities out there that may never get to the unicorn status, but they are still fantastic businesses. You know, and we can find those kind of businesses, you call them racehorses or uh, zebras or whatever you want to call them. And they're not wanting to raise 50 to 60, 100 million, but they just want to invest the next step. Back to the analogy, what we've also seen is two elements. One is from an LP side. There's nothing that gives more confidence to an LP than just predictable progress. So that is why we like to have in our garage a set of Land Rovers and BMWs because quarter report after quarter report, if you're showing that a set of your portfolio just continues to make great progress, then that instills confidence. It also then drives a nearer term exit point, which of course is another key area of comfort. So we've successfully exited six companies in the last three and a half years which when you think of the numbers of portfolio companies we have is actually an incredible result. And so that, again, is building confidence in us. The third thing I think is really interesting is um, we're finding that some of companies that we thought were initially kind of great companies were going to do interesting stuff have actually turned into far more. So we made an investment into the health and safety area, health and safety SaaS. Originally, it was called She Team has rebranded to Evertix. The whole COVID plus, plus, plus mental health issues has pushed the whole 
health and safety EHS arena right into the spotlight. So a company we thought would be originally a nice growing business has actually turned into something far more special. The types of businesses that you're talking about, but then the level below you, we believe that they have an issue in finding good funding sources because the VCs are all chasing the moonshots. And there are so many business models out there that no matter how good the founding team, it's not going to be a moonshot. And you can see that from the get-go, basically. And then they need the capital to fuel their growth. I'm curious to hear, where do you typically take over? As discussed earlier, the range that we enter is typically 50-ish people, typically three to eight million revenue run rate across Europe. Second last one was three million euro. The most recent B2B insurtech business is about seven or eight million euro, a business called Genesis. So they are typically funded from a wide range. Your classic is kind of the normal, right, some kind of seed fund, maybe a series A, early series A player. So your likes of kind of Nauter, Notion, Project A, Creandum, et cetera. But when you actually add up, and you guys have seen this, there's such a wide number of early stage investors, right, from geographical city specialists, et cetera. So we monitor the activity of all the categories of investors, corporate investors, local entrepreneur, business angel funds. And then, of course, you've got yourself increasingly, which is much more prevalent in my 25 years in the industry in Europe, is second-time founders who have obviously made quite a bit of money before, and they effectively have seed-funded themselves. So you're finding kind of owner for the first time, they'd be going out for a, a growth capital fund or at a later stage than comparable players. So two elements to take away there. One is for the early syndicate. What's really important to them is the syndicate fit. So whilst they want a great logo and a great evaluation, the more experienced syndicate partners also want somebody who's going to work well in the syndicate. Experienced investor, not going to be a pain in the ass, understands how to be a partner within a board and a syndicate group, and then clearly someone who's actually going to add value and work well with the team. And then your founder-owned businesses with no one else, they're obviously looking for the term put to me a lot of time is, you know, this is a marriage. This is, this is a really important decision for that group because there are small people and they're going to have this kind of you and them. So it's a very tight piece. And so therefore, DNA, chemistry, the culture of the firm, you know, who, who they're going to meet, all these kind of stuff is uh, referencing with other CEOs. Don't show me your best companies because they're going to say, you know, fraud capital's great. You know, show me, I want to talk to some of your worst performing companies because that's where the stress is going to be. So having that kind of style and, and approach in our area is really important. You've been talking about some of the deals you've done recently, and I'd like to go a bit more micro now because we've been talking about portfolio. So when you see a deal, what gets you excited and what, what are you guys hunting for? We have... 20 criteria that we use in our first phase analysis. Running an investment firm, it's really important to um, get to the contention of why you like a deal and why, David, Andres, you don't. We use that 20 criteria, which clearly goes from management team, so quality of CEO, the ability of the CEO to recruit and retain top talent, the ability of the CEO to delegate 
and not be a complete control freak. <laughs> Manage to lift out of that 50 people phase when you know everybody through to that 250, you know, right through to the areas of kind of market size, all that kind of stuff. I think the key areas for us a lot of the time are around, um, in around the area of sort of four to five forces. So, you know, what moats are you building up? What's the strategic value? So gross margin would be a, a kind of important one for us. You know, running a business with low gross margin is incredibly tough. You just have to wrap that revenue-wise. So, yeah, so we have a very methodical approach to that, which is critical. So when we hire, we just hired a really good guy who started in January. So they're going through that. Well, what, what does a good deal look like for this team, for Frog? And we just literally lay out the last 10 deals that we've looked at and show the sort of rag ratios of red, amber, green of each of those 20. It immediately gets up the learning curve. Say, okay, you've not decided to do those things because of the discussion around whatever it was on the 20 criteria list. I'm super curious to hear how you have navigated in the last two years, not in terms of not being able to see people and so on in the COVID times, but more the completely out of this world bull market that we're seeing in tech and the valuations also skyrocketing because that's where we've seen traditional VCs adapting their portfolio models and saying, okay, but we need to still get into the hottest deals that have the biggest market and the biggest opportunity. We'll just have to lower the size of the percentages that we can expect. I'm guessing that you haven't done that because that wouldn't fit into your model. So I'm super curious to hear how you've reacted to that market. Yeah. And also the market of founders expecting to be able to close around in two weeks because that's what you're hearing everywhere. But I'm guessing that's not your model either. No, you're right. I think it's a real stress. You're right that the kind of initial reaction for a lot of funds is, well, we need to go earlier. So everybody's sort of dipping down. We've not done that. I think because we're older, maybe. <laughs> it's really, really difficult to reverse that. You're just getting into a completely different risk level, different problem area. You end up two years down the line, okay, spending loads of time on a deal. You, you know, let's say a fund that's normally used to doing 20 million checks, put 5 million into company, and then they're spending loads of portfolio time on this 5 million company. It just causes incredible stress within the uh, partnership group. Back to sub-radar, you know, it's really sticking to our knitting, communicating our partnership approach around who we are, and then I would say being more flexible for a good company, getting involved in some other way. So uh, maybe we've done a deal which we just sold recently called Open Signal, where we actually wanted to get in the company and we did all uh, secondaries. So we didn't do any primary because they didn't actually need any money, but we ended up buying out um, part of Fashion Capital stake, which worked ultimately very well for us. And then on the other side of things, it's probably more companies, given our operational partner group, taking on more risk in deals. So there's some deals out there will have some kind of, not issue, but maybe they're just a little bit more complicated to communicate. We did one recently, which is the InsureTech business, which is ultimately originally a, a South African business that has come to the UK and they've done some really nice stuff with some initial clients in the UK. And quite a lot of other people, I think, are just thinking, okay, I, South African thing is too complicated. Interestingly, in the two of the last companies, we've taken larger stakes than we normally do. So we've managed through that work to increase that average rather than where you were going, which is just people saying, okay, because of higher price, we have to take a lower stake. So effectively, what we're doing is understanding what our strengths are 
analyzing a risk, knowing that we can sort the risk out and therefore get rewarded by that by getting either the same valuation despite a high market or ideally a lower one and avoiding having to play the game that uh, everybody else is doing, which is just ramping the prices up. I'm very curious here, and it's also going to prove that I'm out of tune of this part of the market, but have you seen founders in your market also expecting much higher valuations in this period that we've been in? It's a kind of an odd one, but uh, wherever we are, you know, obviously there's always a negotiation about valuation. So even in low times, founders want values that are high for the time period you're in. Right now, this seems to be an exceptionally um, high period. And of course, you know, if they're going to justify that, then they need to be in you know, absolutely nailing all the targets. So we, we tend to not not be in those kind of games. You know, if, um, you know, if a deal is being seen like you know an index or an Excel or a Bolton need to get into it, it's just not our game. Yeah. Um, and so we're very clear on doing that. But yeah, valuation is always some kind of discussion. But ultimately, remind yourself that to my marriage point, it's a long-term relationship and people need to choose... And they do end up choosing the, the partner they really want to kind of think through, right, okay, there's going to be a February Monday morning where I know I've got to tell my investor that uh, we missed the numbers or I've had to fire that new sales lady I hired or whatever. And that's the sort of piece that goes through my mind. Yeah, I prefer to ring Mike and the team because the deal, they're not going to freak out or actually they're going to be on the phone and they're going to have some time to actually help me sort it out rather than not having the time to support at all. You know, by visiting your website, uh, we quickly see something that you guys call scale-up methodology. I'd love to ask you to give us a quick overview of that, but more interestingly, how do you make that work from an operational perspective? Because I think there's a lot of learnings in there. Yeah, so the scale-up methodology is the DNA of Frog. It's not just a website. And it's born out of really analyzing all the things that can go wrong in that 50 to 500 journey, the, the important things, and then trying to break those down in terms of, okay, how are we progressing with each of the fields so we know as a partner to a company that's not going to come out of the blue and suddenly cause an issue. And then second is, because this market, as you guys know, is fraught with marketing bullshit, loads of great websites and stuff like that, is starting to then pair that up for the customer, the, the management team, content. So you see a lot of content on there. So you can go on and say, right, click to say I'm a CEO or a CTO or a CRO, and then see a set of toolkits and content that are relevant for your role in the business. So that's a big thing for us to say, this is not all about CEO. This is about full team. Then second, obviously, is our operating partner team. So on the team page, seeing right, the expanding group of um, experts we have within the team are very much integrated into Frog, sorting out and helping with particular issues, whether it be just a phone call or Andrew Beckley, for example, is actually interim CTO at our second most recent deal, which you'll be doing for probably three months. And Claire there, who's the CEO, is just you know, over the moon because you know she's gone from trying to choose an investor through to three months later, you know, we've got a fantastic CTO candidate in finals. But immediately since the closing, she hasn't had to wait. And then in terms of our mentality of measuring and assessing performance is again linked to the scalar methodology, not just on the assessment in, so how do we rate and assess a business going into it, but also three, four years later, we're still talking around the structure of the scale-up methodology to, to whatever stage. There's always another stage of risk and then gauging that and then attributing quarterly tasks to each team member to say, right, okay, let's help 
company X with its next challenge on, whether it be strategy or fundraising or, or whatever it is. Before we really dive deep into the scale-up methodology that you have, which I think this deserves quite some time, but before that, I'd just love to hear the internal workings of Frog between the operational team, the platform team, whatever different funds are calling it, and then the investment team. How do you guys work together? How do you make sure that you as the investment team get the information that comes from the operational team and the other way around? And how do you align in the daily works and so on? In the body language um, you had there, the podcast, we won't be able to see it, you kind of <laughs> were showing the operational team and the investment team, which is very real, particularly in private equity, but somewhat in VC as well. So clearly the kind of key element is actually, it's really one team. That manifests itself, number one, in the initial assessment of the deals. So the operating partner team are very much involved in some of the early meetings. So our CTO, Andrew, he will be meeting teams pretty well, maybe first or second meeting. And by doing that, you're not only ensuring there's that one team feel, but you are um, avoiding the, um, this is a deal we really want to do, handing it over to the operating partner team to take pot shots at (laughs) to see whether they agree. But you're bringing that choice in right from the get-go. And then the second thing, of course, you're doing is when you decide to do the deal, you're deciding together. So culturally, everybody owns the deal once you kind of put the money in, for good or for bad, because every deal is going to have some ups and downs. So when those ups and downs come, you're minimizing the kind of, well, I knew we shouldn't have done that deal. I was never supportive and all that kind of stuff, which is a very real challenge, particularly for larger funds. And how about the carry dynamics? Because that's, of course, something that aligns incentives across the board. Is it across the firm that you're sharing, carry? Absolutely. Yeah, I I can't see how you can do it otherwise. I completely agree. I do agree. (laughs) Okay, but super cool. Then let's move this to to your scale up methodology. Use this as your stage to explain to us what is it? In a nutshell, it's about um, short-term, medium, long-term. So when you look into the methodology, there's some key things, decisions and issues you need to sort as a leader of a company in the kind of weeks ahead of you winning deals, retaining customers, tracking your business. And typically, companies getting into the scale-up phase are pretty good at that. So the challenge really in that phase of things is actually how can you scale to the next phase? How do you move from the founding team being the not the best salespeople in the business? How do you move from that kind of um, selling to um, customer success? How do you move your financial team from a sort of backward-looking monthly accounts view to a forward-looking analytical approach? Then the kind of second phase is your kind of months out, your four, five, six, seven months out view for the CEO, which is uh, coming through the startup phase is quite tough because you're so focused on the week by week. So that's much more around, okay, org chart. What does the org chart look like in six months? In 12 months, how am I going to take that trajectory there? Who have I got in place at the moment? And who is going to struggle to get to the next stage? And then it's dreaded work called strategy. How do you avoid the, okay, let's sit back and take a day out to wallow around the subject of strategy, which nobody wants to do. But equally, you know, you're recruiting maybe 10 or 20 people a quarter, maybe more. How do you explain to them the clarity of the strategy of where you're going? And when you visualize meetings where you're not in the meeting room, but there may be five or six of your fresh team in, how can you make sure they're absolutely crystal clear of the direction the business is going so they don't start to shift onto other parties? And then the final element is the kind of the year, two-year 
horizon? You know, what's your funding strategy? What is your operational strategy to profitability? You know, do you have a plan to become an independent, sustainable business where you can decide your future on your own? Or are you always going to be on that treadmill of needing to go out to raise money? And then finally, what we call value, which is where is all this going? What are the essence of the business that's going to be so valuable to an acquirer in the future? And how do you explain that and build out the relationships to execute on that? Where do you as an individual fit best here? And, and I'd love for you to deep dive on one of the topics there. What's your passion in this scale-up phase? Because you have an operating team and there you have specialists. But Mike, where do you fit? Good question. So one of the key passions for me is around how does, if I call it the board of a company, but how does the decision-making body in a company develop. And for most companies, it will be in the board. Some companies will be informal or decisions will be made outside of the board and they'll be governed. But ultimately, you're going through this transition from a very kind of founder-owned business where the roles between owner and executive are very mixed through to a stage which is totally different, where the teenager of the company is growing up to be a full adult And the role of the founder of shareholders who've been operating that is going to be coming clear around, yes, you own a shareholding, David, but your role as an executive is this, and then your role in the board is this, and they become quite distinct activities. And then in terms of the team dynamics, because the board table is arguably a team and arguably not a team. So it's full of a set of individuals who've ended up in around that table for different reasons. And it's fraught with um, misalignment, different pricings, shareholder structures, different views on growth and EBITDA loss and cash and all that kind of stuff. So my passion is really around the good, the bad and the ugly of around managing that um, trajectory on boards. I love the subject of board work <laughs> and board dynamics, especially because in normal business, you need to have quite a wide exposure to boards to have seen some that function well, <laughs> because the majority of the boards don't actually function very well. Well, it's a great starting place because I think a lot of the time, quite rightly, you know, owners of companies, founders, because they say, well, what benefit is the board? You know, and a lot of the work we do is actually really cramming down the board to understand what the focus is. Because a board that's just listening to an executive team report on the company is a waste of time. So actually, you know, we hopefully end up being a positive force to say, look, if you haven't read the board pack, you're coming to a board meeting, you shouldn't be in the meeting. It's just a total waste of time. So, but structuring that, getting a good chairing role, getting a clear agenda, getting the management information right, it can be a major force for good. And obviously, if you're going to IPO the business, of which we've got two potential candidates in our portfolio, then, of course, you need to really prove to the market over time that you've got your governance uh, act together, etc. I'm so curious here. <laughs> When you go in, Mike, and this is your passion, and you see that, okay, we have suboptimal access on the board, We have a CEO that comes from one modus operandi, and I can clearly see that for this board to be the best it can be, the CEO needs to shift his or her thinking around X, Y, or C. How do you go in there? How do you start making these changes? Because it's so difficult. Yeah, I think it has to be before you've invested. 
that's really a critical phrase because ultimately that's where um, you're still in dialogue, you're still trying to understand and trying to get on the same page with, you know, what will the business look like in one to two to three years' time? And are you aligned around that? And what um, self-awareness does the leadership team have around kind of learning, changing, developing, et cetera. And there are some certain occasions where, you know, through that discussion, we've actually concluded in this very room, you know, we're just not the right investor for you. You're looking for something different. You're looking for a much more passive kind of just money approach, which is cool. But ultimately, you've got to make that call before you invest. Once you're invested, two different kind of scenarios. One is where quite a few companies now effectively are majority owned by the syndicate. So uh, let's say the syndicate owns 60% of the company, so it's a controlling influence. So there, it's about syndicate alignment. And again, before you invest, you need to be really clear around, does our DNA and outlook fit with our other syndicate partners? Because again, if it doesn't, then you're in for trouble uh, later down the line. We could talk on this for hours on end because there's so many things on the top level as we've just touched. And then there's the micro levels of actually making the conversations work and making the individual board members act as they promised they would or (laughs) our relentless focus is performance of the business support for the management team so at times we've actually said look move the board into more of a kind of reporting piece because it's just too big now (laughs) and don't try to change it and actually shift your kind of really your strategic debate dialogue kind of almost out of the board meeting with a smaller subset of people. And ultimately, that's been a massive release for the leadership team. And thinking, what a breath of fresh air. I can kind of, you know, nail the board meetings or reduce them to maybe, you know, four or five times a year and actually just focus on subset of trusted partners who I can really talk detail to. Mike, we need to move to the quick fire, so I'll kick it to David now. Yeah, so Mike, we always end up the episodes with a quick fire round. It's a set of quick answer questions, 30 to 60 seconds each. Are you ready? Yes. <laughs> awesome, let's go. So first question, in venture, what areas excite you the most that other people might not really feel that excited about? Sadly, RegTech. Why sadly, I have to ask. (laughs) Compliance is a growth market. Regulation is a growth market. It's deeply inefficient right now. There's fantastic businesses doing some really good things using all ML, AI, et cetera, et cetera. And we've been very successful in that field and we hope to continue. We just spoke about our feeder funds into emerging managers. I'm sure that must have uh, had you going because that's also a regulatory space that's interesting. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> We'd love to spar on that, by the way. But uh, moving on, a second question of the quick fire round. And this might be a topic that you don't talk about much. That's why I'm particularly curious to hear your thoughts about it. Most of our audience are emerging managers, so they're on their path to raise first fund, maybe second fund in some cases a bit a bit further on. What would be your three top tips to these girls and guys? Number one is team. Changing team as a venture fund is unfairly a absolute no-no. It is one of the quirks of the market. Ultimately, therefore, the top tip is genuinely look at your partnership with your key partners. I would suggest using an external objective psychologist kind of experienced management DD to really test out whether you're on board for this long, long taxi ride together because putting so much effort into 
a project like this and then five years down the line which sounds a long time but it's nothing because it's really just by the time you might have started to prove out your first fund falling out and moving on is going to be horrible second area is messaging marketing some individuals are absolutely brilliant at it but really taking the time to refine your message you know your single strap line your elevator test your broader more thorough kind of explanation as you get to know people because getting in such a busy market getting that usp differentiation over is going to be critical and again i would encourage people to potentially take outside input because you can think your story is great but you need a kind of critical friend to test that and then of course the art of fundraising which is brutal it's sort of mega b2b sales so qualification is critical 95 percent of the market a lot of the time if you're doing something really interesting is really key let's say you're raising a um crypto blockchain fund at the moment most investors will probably love to have an hour with you because they just want to learn but they're never going to invest so how do you uh, again kind of look at that process as an analytical b2b selling function and really use your ability to effectively qualify out so you can zero down onto the most likely prospects final question of the quickfire round what can we expect in the future from mike and frog capital a lot we've just announced bailey gifford leading the series d at mamakla and we're just out on the road with the series c at modular which is going to be a really interesting round with fantastic business there we've got a couple of more exits in the pipeline we just signed term sheet on our latest deal it'll be our first deal hopefully in spain and then more scale-up content. There is just so much good stuff around product-led growth, the whole area of strategy, um, to make that easier for more models for founders. So a whole whole range of stuff around that. Super cool, Mike. Before we end, you've got two pictures or one picture and an item behind you. I'd love to hear the story of them and also you first describing what they are. The one at the far end actually is a uh, it's a sort of 3D picture made up of dollar bills. I thought it was. <laughs> yeah, so it's quite a. Uh, I don't know whether I can. Uh, uh, yeah. Mike is turning his camera and, uh, and and showing us all his dollar bills. They're actually owned by one of our um, family office investors. Our building here is owned by one of our cornerstone investors, so we have a super strong partnership with them, and they've been great. That, of course, ties well into your last point about knowing who to hone in on in your fundraise. Go for the real estate company that are hosting you. (laughs) (laughs) We must get you over here sometime. Yeah, that would be very great. We'd love to talk to them and uh, be hosted and also... uh, taking a bunch of capital from that family. (laughs) Thanks, Mike. Thanks so much for joining us. It was super awesome to have you on the European VC. Really enjoyed it. Cheers, guys. Four Degrees is the VC relationship intelligence CRM that helps you source and close deals in less time. Built by VCs who recognize the power of relationship networks, Four Degrees will transform your network into a living, breathing engine of opportunity by optimizing the deal-making process. To learn more about how Four Degrees can help you leverage your firm's relationships to move deals forward faster, visit fourdegrees.ai forward slash euvc. 
Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The European VC, your podcast for insights into the European VC industry. If you love our show, do drop us a review, share it with your friends, and join our Slack community at theeuropeanvc.com forward slash community. And don't forget, if you would like to suggest topics or guests for future episodes, join our community and help make the best pod for everything European VC. And if you are about to raise a fund or an international round, do let us know and we'll be happy to introduce you to relevant investors.